Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. In our Crime Scenes edition today, corporate press reporters or repeaters, propaganda and that pipeline, the plot sickens. Sorting it all out is RT's Crime Scene legal analyst, outspoken news decoder and humorist Lionel. I have read this story 10 times. I keep thinking they they must have cut off a portion of this. This doesn't say anything. Three authors, three from the once vaunted, heralded New York Times mainstream media today. I don't know if it's American or if it's Western, but mainstream media are repeaters, not reporters. They repeat their proxies, their agents, their their correspondents, their 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 propagandists. Who had the motive? If you ask somebody, Nord Stream to a pipeline between Russia and Germany, who would have the motive? Who would benefit from this? Cui bono, cui protest. Who benefits? Ask yourself. And the first thing they said was, Russia. How does that work? Well, because they're so evil. <laughs> what? What? Yes. Because this evil knows no knows no sanity is what this evil apparently doesn't know. So now you have this, which all of a sudden. Now, let me also tell you. I don't want to to make it even more complicated or or seemingly complicated because it's so obvious. When you have two leading officials saying, if you do this, that Nord Stream is through. And what happens? Now, come on. (laughs) Come on. Why are we even discussing this? How is it? Two people, what do they happen to say that? Really? That was just an expression. When I said something bad would happen. I, I didn't think it really would happen. And the third question, which nobody is maybe explaining to me, and I'm just a layman. I'm just, I don't know anything about demolitions. I've never destroyed anything underwater or above water, for that matter. Doesn't it take a lot of effort? Aren't these pipelines really encased in concrete or steel or When you leave something that important unattended in the ocean, how is it that these people happen to go out in a rowboat, (laughs) dive down, I don't know how many meters, use whatever equipment is available? This story is so preposterous from the beginning. And meanwhile, nobody has ever said to Seymour Hersh, you're incorrect because of such and such, or your facts, or that, that's profound. It's the very fact that we're discussing this is a testament to the power of whoever is controlling the narrative, because this is obvious. And now, gangsterism, what is it, and how does it play out around the world? Pacifica host, deep dive analyst and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon, breaks it all down. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. And Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin made an unannounced visit to Iraq on Tuesday and said that the U.S. is committed to maintaining its military presence in the country. I should underscore that forces are ready to remain in Iraq at the invitation of the government of Iraq. Well, wait a minute. They voted for us to leave. And you know what? Uh, Mike Pompeo sent a letter that said we look forward to a long presence. So they sent a letter that said you have to leave. And the United States government said we're going to stay. And Lloyd Austin just went there and said, Thanks for asking us to be here. We'll be here for a long time. That, my friend, is gangsterism. So when someone says to me, the GOP, last time I checked, this is the Biden administration. I don't think he's GOP. So when someone says to me, the GOP, why they're a bunch of gangsters and and fascists, but not the, the, the Democrats, I say, they're all a bunch of gangsters and fascists. That's gangsterism. Somebody comes to your house, yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to hang around your house. And you say, well, I don't, I don't want you in my house. Thanks for asking me to stay here. I ain't leaving. 
please leave. I got a gun. I'll kill you. Okay, I guess you can stay. That's pretty much what you get from the U.S. We got troops here. We'll kill you. Oh, okay. Well, I guess you can stay. What do you call that? Does, is that a respect for sovereignty and democracy? Well, let us go a bit further. Uh, the, the March 9th. 171 Republicans and 150 Democrats vote down effort to withdraw troops from Iraq. Okay? The measure, the latest House to push to bring the nation's years-long military president in Syria to an end, failed by a vote of 103 to 21. Okay? Opponents of the resolution who support prolonging the occupation echoed the Pentagon claim that U.S. forces are needed in Syria to prevent a resurgence of, of ISIS and to ensure stability in the region. Either we fight them in Syria or we'll fight them over here, said Republican Ryan Zinke. Uh, while lamenting the proposal's defeat, peace activists noted that it garnered more Republican support than before. Here's the key to that. So the United States occupies about a third of Syria, and that third of Syria just happens to have the oil. Might I add one other thing? That third of Syria is in Syria. The Syrian government, under international law, is a sovereign government. They have a right to say who can come and who can't come to Syria. So the Syrian government has said to the United States, you're not allowed to be here, you will have to leave. And the United States has said, no, we're going to stay, and we're going to keep all your oil, and we're going to steal it. And you know what they've said to Syria? You can't stop us from stealing your oil, so we're going to do it. That's it. I know that sounds complicated, and I know that sounds far-fetched, but let's read this. ABC News. After President Donald Trump said on Monday the U.S. will be keeping the oil in northeastern Syria, his administration is looking into the specifics. We're keeping the oil, Trump said Monday. I've always said that. Keep the oil. We want to keep the oil. $45 million a month. Keep the oil. We've secured the oil. You see, that is fascism because Trump said it, because Trump was doing it. Right? It was fascism. Trump said, hey, we're occupying Syria illegally. The Syrians said, you have to leave. UN said, you're not there illegally. You're not, you can't just go into any country and occupy the country and take their oil. And Trump said, we're keeping the oil. Let me read what Donald Trump said. We're keeping the oil. I've always said that, keep the oil. We want to keep the oil. $45 million a month, keep the oil, we've secured the oil. So we're stealing roughly $45 million a month from Syria, stealing their oil. That's what the United States is doing. And why, what do you know, just the other day, Democrats and Republicans joined hands on Capitol Hill, and overwhelmingly, they lied. They said, yeah, we're going to bring—see, this is why they didn't, Trump had to go— because they called Trump a fascist because he was honest about what the government was doing. Trump said, we're stealing oil, we're keeping oil, 45 million a month. Woo-hoo! We are thieves and robbers. We're getting that oil. We're private pirates. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. And in comes the Biden administration. Hey, you're stealing the oil. Oh, steal the oil. Why, we'd never do such a thing. Are you kidding me? That would be wrong. Steal the oil. No, we're there to bring stability. We're there to fight ISIS. We're there for good things. Puppies, flowers, wonderful things. We're there to do. What about stealing the oil? <laughs> oh, God, that was Trump. <laughs> Silly Trump. Steal the oil. Who'd do such a thing? No, we're not stealing the oil. We're there for goody, good, good things. And that's why when someone says, you know, Republicans are fascists, we got to stop them. Now, the Democrats, they don't steal the oil. They're there to fight ISIS. Are they in there in the same place? Yes, they are. Same troops? Absolutely. Illegally occupying Syria? You better know it. Are they stealing the oil? Well, yeah, they're pretty much stealing the oil. Then what's the difference? It's no Republican. There's no Democrats. There's just oil thieves. That's why I'm glad that I left. I'm, I'm not a member of either party because I don't have to play the other party is a bad guy game. I can look at it like I was a Palestinian. I can look at it like I was an African person. Let me tell you something. 
Talk to the Africans. You want to know about how the people outside of this country feel about the United States. Right about now, you know who the Africans are loving? The Russians and the Chinese. Yes, Americans, you might not be happy about it. So be it. But the African countries are down with the Russians and Chinese. You see, they don't like us, the United States. Not me, I'm black. They don't like the United States. Why? Well, let's see. The United States murdered and overthrew country after country and robbed them blind, along with UK, supported. Let me ask you this. The last two countries that supported apartheid South Africa were the United States, the last three, Israel, Britain. Am I right or wrong? So what, how do you think they feel about us? They ain't thrilled with us. We supported apartheid over and over. We overthrew government. We murdered Thomas Sankara, Kwame Nkrumah, or facilitated a work with over and over. Country we overthrew, we steal their stuff, we meddle in their affairs. And, and people are like, gee, I wonder why the Africans are kind of leading towards Russia and China as opposed to the United States. Let's start here. Let's just look around you if you're a black person. How many black folks you see with Russian and Chinese last names? None. You know why? Because Russians and Chinese didn't grab us and yank them over to their country and make slaves out of us and tell us, you have to be named after the slave master. So you ain't going to find a lot of black folks with Russian and Chinese last names. Now, unfortunately, it's a lot of black folks that listen to the U.S. empire and like, yes, sirree, when the empire tells me who's their enemy, they're my enemy. You know, it's almost like a slave. When the slave owner says, yeah, we hate master so-and-so up the street, and, and the slave says, yeah, master, we hate him, don't we? Yeah, well, you know what? No, you hate him, master. You don't want to press me. I don't hate him. I don't like you that much. You're the one putting a whip on my back. Hey, you know something? I don't remember the last time I was riding down the road and saw blue lights behind me and thought, my God, I sure hope Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping aren't in there because they'll kill me for sure. No, don't remember that happening. You know why? Because it doesn't happen. So if somebody says to me, if the United States government says to me, you should hate Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, I'm going to be like, they ain't never did nothing to me, brah. In the same way that when they said to Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, hey, dude, you, sir, must go to Vietnam and fight for U.S. imperialism. And Ali said, ain't no yellow man ever did nothing to me, brah. I'd rather go to jail. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. You're not fighting for yourself. You're fighting for imperialism. It's imperialism that got me a free boat ride, so I'm here in the first place. So... It is what it is. People can get mad at me, but I am not buying into U.S. imperialism. I oppose U.S. imperialism. When the U.S. overthrew, let me say this. You know, I hate. I'm not biting my tongue. I don't bite my tongue. When the U.S. overthrew Libya, when the U.S. overthrew Iraq, when the U.S. tried to overthrow Syria, when the U.S. I mean, country after country attacked Serbia. You know what? Russia and China opposed, but all every single time Russia and China opposed it. So you think I'm going to hate Russia and China? No. I've been paying attention to Russia and China. I don't have any reason to hate Russia and China. I don't hate the United States, but I hate imperialism. I hate when a country goes around the world and overthrows governments and steals their resources. I hate that. In fact, one might argue, if you love the United States, you should say, let me put it like this. If your brother is a thief, you don't just say, let me help you out and support you in your thievery. You say to your brother, dude, man, you're going to jail. I love you. I don't want to see you in jail. Could you stop the thievery? You're going to get in trouble. And, and maybe somebody will be after you. You'll be riding in my car and they'll shoot us both because you stole something from them. Can you stop with your thievery? You're not going to. And people aren't going to say, hey, you told your brother to stop with his thievery. What's the matter? Don't you love your brother? No, you told him that because you love your brother, not because you don't. So I would say this, those who would say to me, you must support U.S. imperialism when the U.S. goes around lying and stealing and, 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 and overthrowing governments, you got to be down with that or you don't love the United States. I'd say it's the opposite. If you're down with that, you don't love the United States and you don't love, you don't love them. And here's a word our government seems to have a problem with justice. Justice means I can't do one thing and tell everybody I can't be hypocritical. I can't see contradictory policies. I can't go around the world and say to some other country, you know, you've got human rights violations in your country. That you, you didn't, you arrested this guy. Why'd you do that in this country? And black folks are getting like shot down in the, by the police every day. You're like beaten mercilessly, injustice. 
and yet, but yet, the United States has got to go all around the world looking for human rights violations and injustice, but they can't seem to find it here. So to me, that's hypocrisy. That's a contradiction. So here's what I say to the U.S. government. I don't want to hear it. When you start talking about human rights violations, until you can find some human rights, here's a human rights, rights violation for you, the Native Americans. Go to a Native American reservation and tell me that it is not one gigantic human rights violation. That's what it is. It's a big human rights violation. You go there, they don't have water, they don't have clean water, the average person's dying of all kinds of horrible diseases and alcoholism by 40. That's a human rights violation. They didn't ask for that. When their land was stolen, they were shoved, massacred, genocided, shoved into these things and impoverished into abject poverty where they stay to this very day. And we can send $120 billion to literal Nazis in Ukraine, but we ain't got a dime to help the Native Americans. Poor black folks that were enslaved. Poor white folks that are darn near enslaved. We can't help nobody poor. We can't help you if a train turns over and chemicals go all over your... That's all, all white country, uh, 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 mostly, all white town. Nothing for them. Those are poor folks, working class folks, working poor, stuff like that, nothing. Can't help you. We got another $120 billion that has to go to Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. I don't see that as fair. I see that I have to scream out and say, that's wrong. Don't ask me to go clapping behind one of these parties. You guys are doing a great job there, buddy. No, they're doing a terrible job, a horrific, an unthinkable job, a job of totalitarianism, where the government no longer stands for the people, where the government doesn't give a crap about the people, where your government is good for nothing but war. In a totalitarian expansionist government like this, only thing they do is war. That's what they do. It, read the papers. Yeah, China's doing this. Russia. What about Iran? North Korea. All you see is war in the newspapers. Yeah, what about poor folks? Ah, well, you know, uh, well, let's get back to sending more money to General Dynamics. We've got to build some submarines to go blow somebody up. That's not. That's not one party. That's not the Republicans are fascists. That's a, a, a totalitarian fascist government, in my opinion. Now, I said all that to say this. I'm glad I got an opportunity to say that. I need an opportunity to say that. Not a lot of places I can get an opportunity to say that. But you know one of the places that I can get an opportunity to say opportunity to say that? Right here on Pacifica. He's he's pointing out contradictions. What can you say? If I say to you, hey man, you really need to stop drinking, and I got a bottle of cheap liquor in my in my hand, and every time you look, turn your head, I take another swig. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a contradict, I'm, I'm contradictory. And guess what? I don't really mean it. What I mean is you don't drink, I'm drinking this liquor up. But you you shouldn't drink any because I'm trying to drink it all up. So when the U.S. says other countries should not impose on other countries' sovereignty at the exact same time that we're overthrowing governments and illegally occupying Syria, you got to look at it and say, man, that doesn't make no sense to me. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites and liars and frauds. Why do you need to lie to us like that? Why don't you just say like Trump said, man, we're there for the oil. We're getting 45 million a month, son. We got to get paid. We're just trying to eat. That's all. We're crooked. We're criminals. And we can't lie to you. I would respect that. But I can't respect what they're doing. And that's why I got to say this. But where am I going to be able to say this? CNN, MSNBC, Fox? No. No, 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 no. Half the place time you can't say it on the Internet or you'll be thrown off. You see, my friends, the U.S. empire is falling apart. That's what it is, and the U.S. empire is falling apart, and unfortunately, people in this if you're a Democrat, you think that the Republicans are taking us to fascism, and if you're a Republican, then you're convinced that the Democrats are taking you to fascism, and I always put it to you like this. You can look at a cat, and you can say, that's the head of a cat, and I can say, look, that's the tail of the cat, and I can say, that's the legs of the cat, and I can say, that's the fur of the cat, but it's all the same cat. We can use language to chop something up. We can chop that cat up into 100 pieces using language. Hey, there's the heart of the cat, the brain of the cat, the ears of the cat, the eyes of a cat. Look, there's the nose of the cat. We just use language to chop that cat, cat up into 100 pieces, but it's still the same cat, ain't it? So we can use language to chop the U.S. empire all up. Well, that's the judiciary. Oh, well, no, there's the executive branch. Well, there's the legislative branch. There you go. We chopped it up into three parts. Well, then there's the states. There's the federal government. We can continue to chop it up into all kinds of parts using language. But when it comes down to it, the cat that all comes together to vote for another $900 billion for war, don't they? 
the cat can never seem to come together to find money for you to deal with the infrastructure, the bridges that are falling apart, the tunnels that are falling apart, the trains that are blowing up, spreading chemicals all over the, the people. They got nothing for us. They can't come together to do that. But they can all come together, the squad, the Congressional Black Caucus, Congressional Women's Caucus, Congressional Everything's Caucus, Latinos Caucus, you name it, they can come together. The Freedom Caucus, hey, we need another $900 billion for war. Ain't no caucuses all of a sudden. All you got, that's when the whole cat comes together. And then as soon as you say, well, you know, the people are suffering. We just had a train blow up and chemicals everywhere. It spreads out into all different pieces again. Well, I don't know about that. I, I put it like this. Biden, they asked Biden, hey, you're going to East Palestine and uh, do so. He's like, I'll get there, but I don't really know what. Nah. He went to Ukraine. Train blows up. Americans, Americans are right here. Uh, chemicals, horrific chemicals in their water spilling all over them. And what's Biden do? Ah, going to Ukraine and see what Ohio, who's there anyway? Worthless people, Americans, blah, I hate them anyway. And you know, maybe it's me. Are you getting the feeling they really don't like us? Is it that they really don't like us? Is it that our government just doesn't like us? Is it, or maybe they don't notice us. I don't know. Maybe it's not that they don't like us. Maybe it's just that they're not really aware that we're there. You know, we're hungry. We can't afford eggs. We got chemicals spilling all over our water. Then you go to another town. They don't need chemicals spilling on the, over their water because they got lead in the pipes. Our bridges fall crumbling, falling to pieces. Infrastructures from the 1940s. Trains, literally, the technology of our trains is from the Civil War period. China's building 300, 400 mile an hour bullet trains. And you know what the U.S. says? We've got to stop China because they're a threat. They're a threat. My government is a threat to me. They won't do anything for us. They don't care about us. Our money is gone. And But you know what? Let me say this, though. Can I really blame them? I'll tell you why. Because we keep voting for them. We keep supporting them. And all we're going to do is argue that the other team, yes, we're going to we're going to use language to chop it in half. When Garland says, man, the government's forgot about us. They're screwing us. Hold on, Garland. In reality, yes. But let's use some language and chop it into two teams, the Republicans and the Democrats. The Democrats are doing it. No, he's wrong. Well, who's doing it? The Republicans are doing it. So when I say, um, I don't think it was the Democrats or the Republicans that decided to overthrow Iraq, overthrew uh, Honduras in 2009, overthrew Libya and killed Muhammad, uh, 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 Gaddafi, and they always got a boogeyman for you. You ever noticed this too? Whoever the boogeyman of the of the era is, because, you know, it's whatever it is in any given period, time period, whoever the current boogeyman is, both parties are always down with that. You ever heard, like, the government will come out and say, we must hate Saddam, because Saddam Hussein is evil. You ever heard one of the parties say, I disagree? No. Hey, bin Laden's coming to get us. You think one of the two parties is going to say, I don't know. I mean, I ain't worried about, the, you know, bin Laden. We got problems here. ISIS is coming to get us. You think one of the parties is going to say, man, come on, you're scaring me with that ISIS stuff, but I, but we, we we people need jobs and educations. Nope, you're not going to hear. Then, when it comes up with Putin, Putin's evil. He's going to kill us all. You think one of the parties are like, well, I mean, he ain't doing nothing to me. I'm just trying to eat, and I can't afford my rent. Gee, how about that? Remember this? More Mark Gaddafi. What an evil guy. He's doing terrible things. Ain't nobody said, what, you, did one of the parties say, the man's 8,000 miles away. What, what are you talking about here? Why are you trying to scare me with somebody seven, 8,000 miles away all the time? I'm tired of these boogeymen. Now, I always say that, and I always get a hard time. I'm used to it. I'm accustomed to it. Every four or five years, sometimes less, when the United States comes up with the newest boogeyman, right now it's Putin, that's going to shift. I can see the shift coming to Xi in China. I can see that's going to be the main boogeyman. And it's going to be like, instead of everybody, Putin, Putin, Putin. And, and, and you're going to say, hey, don't you hate Putin? And somebody's going to say, Putin? Putin? What? No, I don't remember that name. Um, did you know what G did? The president, he's an evil dictator. He's eating his people. He's genociding people. Oh, my God. Didn't you watch MSNBC and Fox last night? They told us all the terrible things that China was doing. Putin is so last month. We don't even, we're not afraid of him. We don't hate him anymore. Now it's G. 
that's what you're going to get. Oh, well, I've got my um, Ukraine. So, oh, God, you got a Ukraine flag. Who cares about that? Here's your Taiwan flag. You keep up with the times, dude. Keep up with the times. Ukraine was last month. This month is Taiwan. That's the way it works for the suckers. It's always a boogeyman. And the, the, what, the reason I have a hard time is because I've never bitten the hook on one of the boogeymen. Hey, Garland, the commies are coming to get us. Get out of my face. Hey, Saddam Hussein and his sons, they're eating people. Feed them to the lions. Leave me alone. Putin, oh, my God, Putin sure is evil. He's taking care of Trump's. Get away from me with them lies. It's always the same people. If it's the same people as the last lies, then Garland knows they're lying again. So people are, the problem is everybody's always mad at me. I'm always the bad guy because in the United States, they always got a boogeyman. You see, it's not the billionaire oligarchs in America that's screwing you over. It's somebody that's 8,000 miles away. It's Putin. It's Assad. I forgot about him. You, what, Garland, what are you, some kind of Assad lover? I said, I ain't got nothing against Assad. Get out of my face. I ain't in Syria. The Syria people seem to be fine with him. They voted him in. Leave me alone. Ain't my business. Let them handle it up. I'm dealing with these knuckleheads that's running this country, robbing me blind, uh, raking me over the coals, taking all my tax money, spending it on stupid stuff in war, and I get nothing in return. No, I don't have a problem with Assad. Don't have a problem with Putin. Don't have a problem with the mullahs who run Iran. Don't have a problem with Xi. I don't have a problem with nobody. I got a problem with the people on Capitol Hill. Got a problem with the people on uh, 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 in New York on Wall Street. Got a problem with the people uh, who's uh, with the military industrial complex. I got a problem being lied to by the media. That's who I got a, lie, a problem with. But don't try to feed me that Assad, Putin, Saddam Hussein, uh, Bin Laden, whoever the latest boogeyman is. I never buy it. Never buy it. If you've been listening to this show now, you know I never buy it. Never, ever going to buy it. I just say, enjoy this boogeyman while you can, because he ain't going to be here for so long. While you got the current boogeyman, I guess Putin is at the top of the list. Enjoy the Putin boogeyman, because it's just a matter of time before he fades out to the sunset and you get issued. Our government, in the same way when somebody goes into the military and they issue you uh, issue them a new set of boots, that's how they issue, bo issue boogeyman. Hey, Corporal Nixon, yes. Reporting for duty, sir. All right, here you go. This is the official boogeyman. Yes, sir. Don't forget, here's some shoe shine. Shine your boogeyman. Yes, sir. I will shine my boogeyman. And when that boogeyman's done, you will be issued a new boogeyman. Thank you, sir. Sir, yes, sir. That's what American people. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't want a boogeyman. Sorry. Can't, can't, can't deal with boogeyman. All right. We're done with boogeyman right now. We've boogied out. Which reminds me, what was the song by KC and Sunshine Band? I'm your boogeyman. That was a great, love, great song. I love KC and the Sunshine Band. A lot of good stuff. I'm your boogeyman was good. All right. But I digress. History tells me that when the United States government tells me that some guy's a boogeyman, he's probably pretty much okay. I, look, I know you're going to hate me. I'm going to tell you the truth. History tells me. My experience is most of the time when the United States has said somebody was an evil boogeyman, he wasn't all that bad. And if he was really bad, if he was really bad, then he's somebody that we had put in power and we just tired. So either one of two things, if we had previously put him in power, then he probably was pretty bad. But if we never put him in power, he was probably all right. Tell you the truth. That's been my experience. Like it or not, so be it. But... If I can find this article, this is a big one. Woo! This is a big one. It's a big one, and I'm not joking. Arch rivals Iran and Saudi Arabia agree to revive ties, reopen embassies in a China-brokered deal. Regional foes Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to resume diplomatic relations and reopen embassies in each other's countries, both governments announced. In addition to resuming diplomatic relations and reopening their embassies and missions in each other's countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to affirm, quote, the respect for the sovereignty of states and non-interference in eternal affairs of states. Well, you know the United States don't want to hear that. Oh, my God, that non-interference and respect for the sovereignties of other states. How can the United States continue to occupy Syria when Saudi Arabia and Iran to, uh, that have been, you know, like the enemies come together and say, we got to respect the sovereignty of other states? That's kind of saying to the United States, I think it's time you leave Syria. And what are you doing in Iraq? They don't want you there. They're saying to the United States, it's time to leave. It's time to get out of the Middle East. You're not wanted here anymore. Adios, gringo.
That's kind of what they're saying, if you ask me. And what's interesting is that China brokered it. China went over there. See, you got to understand something. The United States are gangsters. We go around the world and we say, do what we want or else I'll kill you. Blinken is a cold-blooded mafia figure. Biden, too. They blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, and Germany is their friend. And recently, they came up with a lie, a preposterous, absurd lie now that six idiots— Now, they're saying, yes, uh, six guys on a sailboat sailed out to uh, the Baltic Sea, somehow avoiding the radar and uh, satellite coverage of NATO— and uh, they dove 240 feet down with like 500 pounds of explosives that they planted in four places. Wait a minute. How stupid do you think we are to believe that? Seymour Hirsch comes out with an article and says, Joe Biden blew it. Him and his boys said, we're going to blow it. And here's the details of how. Biden blew the pipeline. And now all of a sudden, the CIA is like, yes, we've uh, got, we found the perpetrators. <laughs> a sailboat. Yeah, that's the ticket. A sailboat. Uh, six idiots. Uh carried 2,000 pounds of explosives out on a sailboat. And they just happened to have the technical knowledge to know exactly where the Nord Stream pipeline was, and they just swam down 240 feet. Now, you got to have a hyperbaric chamber, and you got to have to have all kinds of special stuff. And how do you carry? How does two divers carry 1,000 pounds of explosives? I don't know. That's a tough one. But I guess they think we're idiots. But I guess since every time they give us a boogeyman, we believe it, maybe we are idiots. But we're not stupid enough to believe that. So China goes over to Saudi Arabia and they say, Saudi Arabia, Iran, come over here. Look here. We got lots of paper. We got money. We got loot. Let's do a deal. Saudi Arabia is like, well, China is our number one purchaser of oil now. So, hey, hey, hey. And Iran's like, hey, they, they buy a lot of oil. We'll sell them some oil and gas, too. So guess what happens? United States' number one friendo after Israel says, hey, dude, we're going with China. Now watch to see if the, Now, is the United States going to try to overthrow the government of Saudi Arabia? It wouldn't surprise me because, let's face it, they're gangsters and thugs, and that's what thugs and gangsters do. So keep an eye out if the thugs and gangsters in the U.S. try to overthrow the Saudi government. Wouldn't shock me. I hope they don't, but I wouldn't be shocked if they do because that's what thugs and gangsters— if you're a thug and gangster, that's what you do. But China has basically made this point. When the United States comes to your region of the world, they bring planes and bombs and guns. They kill people. They overthrow your country. When we come to your part of the world, we bring money. And we say, hi, you want to make a deal. And we make a deal, and everybody's happy. They made a deal. That changes the whole course of things in Middle East. And it changes the course of things because people now look and they're saying, man, Chinese people are pretty good at diplomacy. The Chinese government's pretty doing some decent things out here. They're bringing stuff. <gasps> what is that word? Stability to the Middle East. After we've spent decades of creating absolute chaos, China creeps up in there behind our back and brings stability. They bring peace. Now, you know the U.S. government ain't going to be happy with that because the last thing we like is peace. You know what I mean? That ain't what we do. Ain't no money in peace. So the U.S. is going to be like, this is an injustice. It must not stand peace. What are you, madman? You're crazy. We got to stop this peace thing. I don't know what you trying to pull off with peace. So that is huge. That's big. That means the world order has changed. That's what that means. The world order has changed. That means there's a new sheriff in town. You know what that means? That means that Tony Blinken and his crew is messing around, causing chaos in the Middle East, and the Chinese uh, uh, ambassador went over there and said to Tony Blinken, do not send a boy to do a man's job. Let me show you how it's done. And the whole world is looking, saying, well, United States... Let me see you bring peace to any region. They just brought peace to a region between two countries that's been at each other's throats for years, the United States. Let me see you try it. And the U.S. was like, try it? That ain't what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to bring chaos and war to countries that haven't been at each other's throats for years. So you know we don't want to do that. Well, that's that. Thank you, Garland Nixon and Lionel. 
This is Comrade Karl Marx. And when I'm visiting the 21st century, I listen to Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have a world to win. Listeners of the world, unite. That's Arts Express with host Prairie Miller, where art meets politics. And if you're down with the status quo, take the local. And coming up next, when I do business meetings, I'm still told way too often by some receptionist, the mailroom is downstairs. And that was John Ridley, African-American filmmaker, author, graphic novelist, and Oscar winner for his screenplay, 12 Years a Slave, speaking in our conversation coming up about how apartheid still exists in Hollywood and this country. Ridley, who directed as well the documentary Let It Fall about the 1992 L.A. riots, discusses his latest graphic novel work and his upcoming biopic Shirley, starring Regina King as Shirley Chisholm the first black congresswoman and first black woman to run for president. First, a little about Shirley Chisholm from the 2004 documentary Chisholm 72, Unbought and Unbossed, then John Ridley. It's time for the body politic to truly represent America. I was awestruck, well, that was the first time that I thought about registering to vote. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. Who is this? She's running for what? I said, oh, she got to be crazy. You know, I said, I got to beat her. For the first time in the history of this nation, a person of color and a woman at that is running for the highest office of this land. This was a period when black women were finding their voices in unprecedented ways. There's another kind of individualism and sense of liberation. We cannot continue to take things as they are. When we see around us that government is not responsive to certain segments of the population. There was a grassroots movement. People who had never participated in political thought and political ideas were now doing it. She was willing to take on the white establishment on the issues of the Vietnam War, on Head Start. She was out there fighting on every single issue. I didn't have many signs that indicated I'd be doing the right thing, really. Frederick Douglass said something that she often quoted. Power concedes nothing without demands, without struggles. What was her motives? It was the struggle. Whether you got 9% or 1% of the national vote, Shirley's candidacy said, I'm not demanding to get in. I'm asserting my right to be here, and I am in. That's powerful. I have never, ever had that kind of impact on me, not as a woman, not as African-American, not as a mother, not as an educator, but as a human being. I wanted to ask you, what can you say about your current film project, uh, one of another of your pursuits, Shirley, and what led you to see Regina King as your choice for Shirley Chisholm? Well, all I can really say about the film right now is I think it's the other way around. Um, I was <laughs> very fortunate that she, who really wanted to do the film and really uh. wanted to tell um, Shirley's story, that she felt like I would be um, a good partner in that. Um, we'd obviously worked together a few times, and um, the times that we would work together were, I think, by most measures, very successful. But it's a you know complicated story. It's a story about representation. It's a story about voice. It's about the story about you know marginalized individuals um, finding their seat at the table and forcing their way to that table because they deserve to be there. I cannot think of anyone who is more suited for that role than Regina, and I'm very excited both of us for the uh, the film to come out. And you once said, when I go to business meetings, I'm still told way too often by some receptionist, quote, the mailroom is downstairs. What are your thoughts about that, and does that still happen? Well, I would certainly say over the last couple of years, just because meetings have changed, I haven't had to go through that. Um, it's <laughs> You know, it's sort of remarkable to me that um, even in spaces where 
anybody, and, and, and obviously this, this is true for all spaces, but I'm talking about in particular our space where um, anyone could be an actor, a producer, a director, um, people, you know, there's business casual is, is every single day. Um, there's all kinds of people working out here uh, that that's still a space that is supposed to be open-minded, supposed to be progressive, is um, indicted all the time as being sort of left coast liberal, that there are people who are myopic and there are people who judge and there are people who will look at you and assume that you don't. So it's really a reminder that that kind of, you know, these microaggressions that happen, they can happen anywhere. Uh, they're not bound by geography. They're not bound by um, the idea of, oh, well, that only happens in this part of the country or that part of the country. It can happen anywhere to anybody. Um, I'll be honest, I, I did have an incident just a couple of years ago uh, here in New York in a space where, uh, you know, look, we're, we're always going to be welcome everywhere, but a space where I was in particular, mm. no one had any business, you know, questioning me. Yeah. And trust me, they're, they're worst as, as a person of color, as a, as a minority in America, there's certainly much worse things that can happen and we see them happening. Yeah. But it is one of those reminders that whatever you think may uh, separate you and allow you some dispensation, whether it's money or status or whatever it is, no, it, it, it follows. You know, that myopia and judgment and all of those things follow all of us. And so we've got to be there for everybody when it happens to someone else. If we don't stand up, if we don't use our voices, uh, we can't complain when it circles back and, and, and it lands in our laps. Now, your work has been noted for, quote, raising the visibility of previously underserved superheroes in the DC universe through contemporary and relevant storylines, making a contribution to a more diverse and inclusive comic book landscape. Please elaborate on why those aspirations are important to you. <laughs> well, that's very deep. So <laughs> we've said all of that. But look, I mean, it's just very fundamental is that um, all the things that I found very interesting comic books growing up, um, it was just around the edges, tainted by the things that were not there. And everybody, you know, it, it just goes back to the, you know, the, back in the day, the doll studies is even when black kids were presented with a white doll, because that's what they saw all the time, that was more desirable to them. So to me, it's, you know, it, it starts whether it's an early age for kids who just pick up a comic book, and that's their first exposure to reading or storytelling or mythology, or ideas of right and wrong, and being able to see that there are people who choose to do better and do more, and um, choose to represent, and they're heroes, and they're lauded as being heroes. Oh, and on top of that, they're black, or they're Asian, or what have you. Um, you know, there's so many of us who are from traditionally marginalized communities who had no problem reading superhero stories, even when those heroes didn't physically um, represent or emotionally represent or have perspectives that in some ways represented things that were familiar to us, we still read those stories and we still love those stories and we still participated. And so for me, it's really important to take all of those things that I admired about storytelling, about graphic novels, about representation in terms of positive things, um, wish fulfillment and doing right and having a moral compass and understanding, as you hear all the time around comic books, that with great power comes great responsibility. Those are all really important um, things for people to really understand. But then to take it that other step and say, here's what was not represented when I was growing up, and it's absolutely going to be part of this story, whether um, it's just in representation, whether it's in deep storytelling, that is unflinching. Um, for me, one of the... the uh, project that I'm most proud of ever was the other history of the DC universe, mm. which just takes these stories that have existed for many, many years, many decades, and the same story, but just shifting that lens a little bit, shifting that perspective a little bit, and talking about these events from the perspective of heroes of color. Um, same story, completely different look, completely different feel, completely different emotionality, um, and the response from all kinds of audiences, not just one kind of audience, has been just overwhelmingly positive, and I could not be more proud of that project. So 
that for me um, in, in that incredible um, paragraph description of my work, or at least my intentions, you know, it really comes down to just being reflective and reflective of the world that we live in. Um, I hate to say diversity. I think that's a concept from the 70s that you can just have, you know, you got one black person, one female, one Latinx. Okay, well, we did our job. We have some diversity. Um, but that's not really reflective of the world that we live in. And I want stories that truly reflect. They all sort of operate in different spaces. You talk about the inspiration. Some of them were not so much inspired, but um, assigned. Uh, I was very excited, for example, to be able to work on the project One Bad Day, which is a series of comic books that are really highlighting Batman's um, arch nemesis and really an opportunity to excavate these characters beyond just being criminals. Um, where do they come from? Why? What has inspired them? What is their trauma from the past? In addition to that, one of the comics I'm really excited about is just on the ongoing series, I Am Batman, which is set in New York City, and um, Lucius Fox's son, and Lucius Fox has been an, an ongoing character in the Batman universe, and they have a young man who's Batman, a young black man who's Batman. It's very exciting. It's been a very, very exciting storytelling. So I'm very fortunate. You know, it's a rare opportunity, and I feel very blessed. Mm. And what can you say about what is unique to your comic books, taken in a new and different direction in that world? For me, it's really less about highlighting individuals and their superpowers, but it's more about highlighting them as people and really excavating as characters, um, as humans, their failings, even those who are heroes, what makes them human, what makes them um, relatable, um, what makes them the world that we live in. And all of these characters, you know, so many of them have endured, you know, decade after decade after decade. In this decade, in this time period, in the world that we live in, what makes them unique? What gives them a worldview? And I think of my own two young men, my two, two boys. If they were, and they are, reading comic books now, what is it in these books that my young men or any young men in 2022 would be able to look at and say, okay, I understand where they're coming from. I understand what they're about. And they have a connectivity to these characters. And they're not just mythology but there's something very grounding in them. And growing up, what most troubled you about comic books and led you to create them your way? Well, a lot, you know, as you're growing up, first the, the, the world that they inhabit, particularly, you know, look, I was a kid in the 70s and 80s. There's an excitement about what you read. There's uh, aspirations and, and desires for wish fulfillment. But then, yeah, there does come a point where you start to read these and you start to realize that a lot of what you're seeing, um, it doesn't represent, it doesn't reflect the world that you live in. Um, very specifically, um, the kinds of people that I would see on a daily basis, black people, um, and black people who were um, of different stripes and different kinds, you know, were not monolithic. And so it wasn't just about seeing one person of color, one black person. In a comic book, you know, I'd go through my day and you'd see dozens and dozens and dozens of kinds of different kinds of black people. So that was, you know, you, 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 at some point, you become very aware of what is not in these stories, what is not represented. And you start to realize it's not just not represented on the page, it's not represented in the writing, it's not represented in the editing, it's not represented in its overall worldview. So those are things, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily, I wanted to rally for change in a very demonstrative way, but you wanted to be part of the process and you wanted to tell stories and you wanted to tell stories where all kinds of people would feel invited. Mm -hmm. So that was, yeah, very much when I was younger, something that inspired me and something that brought me, I think, full circle to a moment um, that I'm having right now. And how would you say you came to wear so many creative hats, writer, filmmaker, comic artist, and how would you say each of them inspire you differently? Well, I think for me, I, I choose to do many things because I, I never want to feel limited um, in any regard, whether people, you know, think, oh, well, you're just a TV writer, or oh, you should just be writing this kind of a story, or just like everybody in Hollywood, there are so many um, people are just ready to tell you no, you know, no, we don't like that project. No, it's too expensive. No, we don't get it. So for me, it's just part of the reason I do a lot of things. I don't 
like to take no for an answer. So I'm going to write it. And if I can get it made as a TV show, that's the way it's going to be. Or if I can get it made as a film, or if this one feels more appropriate as a book, or if no one in Hollywood likes this, then let me go pitch it as a graphic novel. Um, I take every opportunity that's presented to me very seriously. I take the work very seriously. I know that for a lot of us, um, very unfairly, um, we, our, our entire race, our, our entire um, ethnic group, our entire gender, what, what have you, is, is often judged by the work that an individual does. So for me, um, while I don't think it's fair that other people may be judged by my work, I'm certainly not going to put anyone in a position where they may be judged negatively because of what I've done. Um, whether it's me personally, whether it's a whole group of people, whether it's my parents or what have you, I take every opportunity very, very seriously. Um, and I like doing these things too. I like writing. I enjoy directing. Uh, I guess I am a little bit of a control freak, uh -huh. um, but I enjoy the process. I really do. And so for me, it's, it's there are many reasons that I do it, um, but I'm at the end of the day very thankful that I even have the opportunity to tell stories, to engage, to do the things that I love, to do them in many spaces, and I hope and believe to do them to the best of my ability. Okay, well, thank you so much, John Ridley, for calling into our show. Thank you so much. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you very kindly. Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye. And that was filmmaker John Ridley talking about his upcoming biopic, Shirley, out in release later this year. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.